You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I have no idea. It's not well. I mean, I. I it's, uh, it's, uh, look, you read the book. It's very critical of that kind of mentality. You know? Oh yeah. No, no, no. It's, so that's it's that's a, all. That's all there is to it. You watch what the New, York, the New York Times is going to. Yeah. <laughs> they're going to eviscerate it. You no, they're going to hate me. They're going to hate me. <laughs> but the thing is, like, it's pretty well researched. It's going to be tough for them to. Um, you know, no, no, no. Find I find a chink. You know, they always do a chink in the armor. They always do, but it's it's going to be harder. This. I'm going to steal your water, man. Uh, oh, actually, I yeah, there's one. Oh, mine. Oh, oh, I bet you okay. brought more. Okay, no, I did, but that's okay. But let's I'm, not talk about that. Forget that. That's just me complaining. No, I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I'm going to have you uh, read. Is there a portion you'd like to read? I did not think of that. I'm sorry. Let me just see here, because I actually had a piece that I marked as but reading. You know what the best writing in the book is, is the Clinton chapter, Hillary chapter. Okay, well, why don't you pick a bit? Uh, but that's, come on. That's... Oh my God, Rick Cleffel. You got to love that title, Liberal Guilt. <laughs> that, is, that is so funny. Uh, so a friend of mine thought that up after he read it. He's like, yeah. Oh, let me see here. I have to, that's what I have to do is. All right. Uh, here we go. Unfortunately, I don't have a hard copy for you to sign because I. They, you gave up on those? No, she didn't send me any. I forgot. To, I was so wrapped up in reading it. I kind of forgot to ask for one. Thomas Frank, 2016, dot doc. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, I'm taking my time here. I'm trying to remember. We can run a little late, Howard. Howard. Well, the, I, not too late, though. Yeah. I'm really sorry. Um I don't remember. What what would you like me to read? Okay, we'll be done by then. What would you like me to no. read? No. No. <laughs> okay. Okay. Right. Oh, oh the, yeah. Well, this was good. My the um. Okay. Why don't you just go ahead and read? That was my first experience of the microclimate of virtue that surrounds Hillary Rodham Clinton, the mystic bond between the high achieving American professionals and the planet's most victimized people. I would discover is a recurring theme in her life and work. <laughs> the, I love that the mystic bond between high achieving American professionals and the planet's most victimized people. It's but it's not just her. That's the it's sort of entire uh, culture she inhabits. You know, mm-hmm. it's like ads on TV. It's you know, it's it's everywhere. It's in well, okay. You're the you're the you're in charge here. I'll shut up. Thomas Frank is the author of The Conquest of Cool. One Market Under God, What's the Matter with Kansas, The Wrecking Crew, How Conservatives Rule. He's been the founding editor of The Baffler, a contributing editor to Harper's. He's been a regular columnist for The Wall Street Journal. His books include Pity the Billionaire, The Hard Time Swindle, and The Unlikely Comeback of the Right. His new book is Listen, Liberal, or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People. Thank you for joining me, Thomas. It's my pleasure, Rick. Thomas, you know, when you go down to the bookstore, you can find all sorts of spins on the dystopia. If you are seeking a literary adult version, you can go for Cormac McCarthy, The Road, and then spend the next day trying to recover from depression. If you're a young adult, you can go for The Hunger Games or any one of probably 10,000 titles. You have just added to the genre. You have just <laughs> oh, God. you've just written the first nonfiction dystopia. <laughs> and, and I thought as I read especially the opening portions of this book that we've pretty much uh, dug beneath anything that Kurt Vonnegut or Philip K. Dick ever could possibly have imagined in their worst nightmares. Oh, please, now. I want people to read this book. I don't want to frighten them away. But, you know, you've put your finger on something here. Uh, do you remember the last book I wrote, Pity the Billionaire? We talked about it. Mm-hmm. And to write – it was a book about the Tea Party movement. And to write it, I had to read uh, Ayn Rand, Atlas Shrugged, <laughs> which is sort of the ultimate in dystopian fiction, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a future where everything has gone completely and utterly wrong. 
and it's a it's a, it's a novel that both enrages you and frightens you and is really unpleasant to read. I mean, it'd be, <laughs> you know, not because it's so persuasive or convincing, but because of the author's you know unbelievable hostility towards the world that surrounds her, her just unrelenting. Uh, uh, you know, what would you say? Lack of pity, mm-hmm. uh, you know, towards towards the people that live in her world. And maybe a little bit of that. Uh, OK, I, I'm, I'm a very pitiful person. I'm a very empathetic person. I should. I'm, I'm the opposite of Ayn Rand. But but maybe a little of that tone, that dark, uh, foreboding feeling, maybe a little bit of that rubbed off. I don't know. But I'm talking about reality. I'm talking about something that's really happening. And I'm sure as we go into this interview, you'll you'll come to the question and you'll trigger my moment of hope. Which you will get before this interview is over. <laughs> I'm I'm looking forward to it. Um, the secret question that uh, that uh, unlocks the hope box. <laughs> <laughs> there is such a thing. Well, I'm glad to hear that uh, because I, in the uh, beginning you talk about the uh, problems with excessive hope. Um, just yeah. as there are other forms yeah. of intemperance. I mean, yeah, I, that's something well, I've just, never it, thought it of. It just drove me crazy. I. I so, uh, you know, Barack Obama, I was a big believer in Barack Obama in 2008. And, uh, you know, the hope, you know, right, the poster. And it was he was singularly identified with that word. And w- once my uh, o- uh, Obama enthusiasm had cooled, I started thinking about it, that word, where it came from. And I remembered Bill Clinton was supposed to be the man from hope. Uh, you know, Uh-oh. do you remember that? Yeah, uh, this is his hometown. <laughs> yeah, and uh, John Edwards have gave that famous speech, "Keep hope alive." You know, this is Democrats always use this this term. Uh, it's it's their it's their sort of patented, uh, you know, it's their patented way of reaching out to their to their voters. And I'm sick of it. I've had enough of it. And I mean, what are you supposed to say? I'm going to write a book without hope? No, of course not. But at the same time, we have to put hope under the. Uh, we have to put hope under the magnifying glass. It's time for a little scrutiny. You know, at the very beginning of this book, you start describing where we are. And I think that's a good place to start this interview because where we are is a, it's a pretty scary place. And it's not something that we're really quite aware of. Well, inequality. Yes. And that's, I mean, when you talk about the dystopian fiction and all of the, like you mentioned, uh, what's the kid's book? The, is it the, the Hunger, Hunger Games? Games. Yeah. Uh, I mean, all of these things, all of the, the, the stuff that you just described, as well as the right wingers uh, love of Ayn Rand, bringing that reviving uh, Atlas Shrug, all of these things speak to the era that we're in. I mean, and these are a kind of this is a dystopian time. I mean, um, we remember what the world was like when we were growing up, the sort of, uh, you know, middle class uh, America. Uh, and we look at what's happening now with, on the one hand, uh, you know, deindustrialization all across the heartland, you know, the uh, wages that never grow, uh, a recovery that never seems to come for most people. And then uh, in, in neighborhoods like uh, where I live, I live in Bethesda, Maryland now, Montgomery County, Maryland, which is a very wealthy area. You know, it's they're they're putting up the McMansions as fast as they can. I mean, the demand for these is so great. Or right here in San Francisco, I mean, what's what's the stuff that cramming people in? The money that people, you know, the tripling people's rent and they don't bat an eye. You know, it's like uh, it's 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 crazy what's going on in this world of ours. And at the same time, you have corporations with a kind of unimaginable power uh, when uh, you know just. Uh, 30 or 40 years ago, you know, companies were, that are openly seeking monopoly, you know, monopoly positions. What, do you remember, Rick, when I got my start in the world of, of literature, I started my own magazine, mm-hmm. you know, something that I did. OK, I started my own magazine, The Baffler. And one of the uh, the, the essay that I always loved the most in those days that I wrote was called um, uh, uh, Why Johnny Can't Dissent. And it was the the theme that ran through it was the idea of the culture trust that we were entering uh, a, a new age of monopoly. And I, at the time, I, it, this is a reaction to the telecommunications deregulation, one of Clinton's mm-hmm. initiatives back in the 1990s. And uh, but damn, that's that's exactly what happened. <laughs> it, it's scary, and this is something I think that you bring up later in the book. But I think it's something that's bugged me for a long time, and I'm really glad that you wrote about it and spoke up about it, which is the refusal of anybody to regulate what to me seemed clearly to be trust, what Franklin Delano Roosevelt would have attacked with uh, his entire Justice Department and 
workers laid off on the street yes. as trusts. Yes. Well, listen, it's it wasn't just Roosevelt. I mean, of course, Roosevelt did was very aggressive in later on in his administration in in, in attacking you know concentrated corporate power, but. Uh, Every president was after him, up until including Republicans, up until uh, the Reagan years. And this is this is fascinating, by the way. That what happened to antitrust in this country it was it used to be a settled part of American law uh, that you you know you can't have how whatever companies controlling say twenty five percent of a given market or whatever it was they would draw these sort of arbitrary uh, barriers, but then they would enforce them. Breaking com- companies up, uh, uh, forbidding mergers. You know, if somebody's market position got too big, they would take some kind of action. And uh, under Obama, uh, antitrust enforcement. I mean, the big Sherman Act uh, cases. This is something I looked up uh, uh, in my research for Listen Liberal. Has dropped to zero. Zero. Say that one more time. <laughs> zero. That is a scary thought. Yeah. I mean, yeah. The because... Justice Department just doesn't does not care. How could we? How could this be? And you talk. Well, okay. So this this is interesting for all sorts of reasons. One of them is I like I said I live in D.C. or I live in the suburbs of D.C. Mm-hmm. And my friends there, like you know, you're too hard. They say you're too hard on on Obama. You know, there's nothing he can do. The Republicans have got control of Congress. They play they they play dirty. They never play fair, and and he can't beat them. But look, antitrust is up to him. He's the mm. president. It's up to him to enforce it. The laws are already written. They're on the books. If he wants his Justice Department to start enforcing the law, all he has to do is write a little memo to Eric Holder. You know, it's like, <laughs> go out and get these guys. I'm sorry. It's not Eric Holder anymore. It's Loretta Lynch. Is that her name? Yes. The, uh, the attorney general. And all he has to do is write her a note and boom, it would start tomorrow. Uh, and the Republicans could not do anything about it. And so the only the answer that you have to take away from that, the reason it doesn't happen is because he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to do it now. OK, so that's that is frightening. And I and it's one of the it's one of the, the, the it's one of the areas that I looked into in Listen Liberal. Why doesn't he want to do it? And you look at the uh, the industry that is most where, where antitrust would be most appropriate, where you see monopolies springing up all the time, where, in fact, monopoly is the business model. As uh, Peter Thiel wrote in the Wall Street Journal, mm-hmm. Peter Thiel, you know who this is. This is the guy I behind. Believe yeah. I interviewed him on my own. Yeah, well, he's a, he's an interesting guy because, as captains of industry go, he's unusually uh, perceptive. Mm-hmm. And he wrote an article in the Wall Street Journal, basically saying that monopoly was the business strategy now. And if you aren't if you aren't trying to get, get a monopoly, you know, <laughs> you're wasting your time, you know. And uh, what I mean is, the industry where this stuff is prevalent is Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Okay, the uh, internet economy. And you look at companies like Amazon, which is, you know, uh, uh, using all sorts of business practices that, well, they seem to me to be, uh, you know, questionable. Or, or Google, which is, uh, you know, this uh, has has captured, uh, well, I don't even know how to put it with something like Google. It's, it's, it's like what I used to call the culture trust, only a trust is a bunch of companies. This is just one. Exactly. Yeah. It's just basically replaced wholesale everybody else. Yeah. It's astonishing what's going on. And uh, Google actually acts as a kind of public utility. And so I'm from Kansas City originally. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, Google came in and and built them a broadband system in Kansas City. You know, uh, it was very nice of them. It's it's, it's free for (laughs) residents of the city. Very interesting thing. They basically, Google has made themselves into a public utility in my hometown. It's a peculiar thing. And but when you think about it, all everything that they do is is like like uh, email is like a it's like the U.S. postal system. Right. It's this is sort of anyhow, it's a fascinating subject. It goes on and on and on. But there's there seems to be very little scrutiny from the Federal Trade Commission or the or the Justice Department or any, anybody like that anymore. Now, in Europe, it's a different different story. Uh, the European uh, antitrust authorities are are really uh, on the case with these guys. But let's I want to take a step back here. Why it, would Obama like care so much about this industry? Why would he why would he care? Well, now you get into this. Yeah. Let's let's as you say, let's ratchet back and take it just one step further back from when the Democrats used to represent the working class. And by that, I mean people who work in, in labor, 
union, sure. largely labor unions. Or, or yeah, blue-collar workers or sure. people without college degrees. Or Actually, today, the working class would include a lot of people with college degrees. Exactly, yeah. So, you know, there's a, there's a sort of... That's that's been happening. Okay, I'm sorry. I talked too much. Keep going, no, Rick. Well, uh, one of the things that interested me in, when I read this book is I thought that America and the workers of America lost a real moment. I'd say probably about 1985 when the IT business was just starting to materialize and become this thing that would eventually become the bubble. And there were a lot of workers in there. Software coders were out there. Had those people joined a union? Or formed a union. Yeah, we would be living in a radically different, different country. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably right. That's you know, look. You live out here, and I don't. Mm-hmm. But uh, unions in Silicon Valley, <laughs> you know. Look, <laughs> one of the points that I, one of the things that I discovered. Seriously, I mean, come on. This is like that's the ultra libertarian culture, you know. One of the things I discovered in writing this book, and I'm going to. Uh, I'm going to sort of venture into the main sort of theory, the hypothesis of listen liberal, which is that Democrats gave up on the working class in order to court the professional class, uh, not to court, to win. I mean, they are. The Democrats are drawn. The leading Democrats are drawn from the professional class. They see the professional class as their main constituency. And they also have theories of history where the professional class sort of replaces the proletariat as the heroes of the story. You know, this is the Democratic Party mm-hmm. I'm talking about here. And um, it's a fascinating uh History vision yeah. of our but wait. Culture. Let me just make one point about the about the professional class that I that I learned in reading all the sort of sociology about professionalism. Fascinating stuff, by the way, which I mm-hmm. get into a little in the book. Um, there is no solidarity in a meritocracy. Professionals live are the, the ultimate meritocrats. Everything is determined by the grades you got in college, how you did in grad school, who your advisor was, what you know, did you get a PhD, didn't you, you know, where did you publish, blah 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 blah, on and on and on, up the up the hierarchy of professional achievement, and there is no solidarity with your colleagues, zero. There's a lot of respect and deference for people at the top, but there's the the, the whole idea of solidarity, which is essential to working class organizations, essential. That is what defines working class organizations: is that we're all in this together. Uh, professionals are absolutely the opposite, every man for himself. And that's Silicon Valley. And this idea of the meritocracy and the effects of the concept of meritocracy echoes throughout this book. And, and as you describe what you call the professional class, the creative class. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so, yeah. Uh, They're so lovable. <laughs> There's all of these wonderful terms for them. The, the creative class is the most famous. You know, Richard Florida wrote all these books about the creative mm-hmm. class and how you have to bow down to them. I love that. You know, you have to. That's And that really is the democratic philosophy now. You have to please this one class that's on top. And that's everything will trickle down from that. But they also use terms like the learning class. They're they're a learning class, Rick. It's it's not like a, a toil. They're not like a toiling class. They're a learning class. And you know other things like this. The wired workers. There was another one that I just saw the other day. There's the innovation class. I love it. It's um, these guys are so awesome. Everybody loves them. Well, it's a case of language is destiny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If you if it you say it is. nice enough, uh, it sort of is. You will be. And by the way, that. this is uh, it contrasts the democratic sort of fondness for these people. You know, using these these silly euphemisms to describe what we would say what we would call professionals. Uh, these silly euphemisms contrast with the 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 real contempt that you see now. For uh, working class voters, especially now that so many uh, working class uh, uh, white voters anyway are going for Donald Trump. Have you noticed this? I brought up his name. Yeah. That's <laughs> scary. I know. I know. But uh, yeah. Anyhow. OK. I, I, I'm sorry. I got off the subject. No, no, no. You were right on it because I think that what we have with uh, the professionalization of the Democratic Party as describes exactly why they are beholden to all these vested interests yeah. who are essentially uh, slowly monopolizing the world. I mean, you no longer have to worry about monopolies of Ford or uh, Edison. You have to worry yeah. about Google and Apple. Yeah, right. I mean, it's it, it is. Well, it's a it's a funny world we live in. But they OK. So let me let me just take this back a few steps. So Beginning in the 70s and the 80s and up into the 90s, the Democrats fought with one another trying to decide who they were. They, had, they And they basically what they decided is they were going to give up on 
the working class and organized labor. Now, they're still happy to take organized labor's money and their support and their help at election, election time. But their organized labor is no longer the key constituency to the party like it was in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. That, those days are over. And what, so instead, Democrats turned to this other group, by the way, a group that was, much, that was very familiar to them because it was who they were. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, know, you look at Democratic leaders, Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton. These are all uh, uh, professional class. These are, some of the, these are extremely successful professionals. Let's put educated it that way. too. Yeah. Oh, well, of course. Yes, expensive very, education. Very expensive educations. Uh, a very a fancy education. Bill Clinton was a Rhodes Scholar, you know. Mm-hmm. Barack Obama was editor of the Harvard Law Review. These are very talented. These are people at the very, very top. And the people that they surround themselves with are, are exactly the same. I mean, Barack Obama's chief economic advisor was the former president of Harvard, Larry <laughs> Summers, you know. It just get, you can't trump that. Uh, excuse me. You can't you can't beat that. There's a, but uh, uh, where was I going with this? But so they, they what happened was once they made this shift from uh, uh, from unions or working class people to professionals, they they adopted a completely different worldview. Now, I should say that shift in and of itself is not a super big deal in the 1970s. But as things change, as the classes move apart, you know, and as professionals prosper and workers get left behind, it becomes a very big deal. So by the uh, the years of the Clinton administration, and this is this is uh, uh, crazy stuff, but by the years of the Clinton administration, Democrats are basically openly identifying themselves with Wall Street, okay, the former, their former... Nemesis. Yes, exactly. Absolutely, Exactly. And when I say this, this is not a conspiracy theory. This is not me deducing something. This is not me reading between the lines. They said this stuff. This is, this is, they were, this is, especially with Bill Clinton, all of his deregulation of the of investment banking and of, well of commercial banking his deregulation of banking across the board his many bailouts which nobody remembers anymore all the favors he did for this industry and how he would go and party with them in the Hamptons <laughs> you know and hold these events with them and so by the end of his presidency I mean the Democrats were very uh, competitive for Wall Street money and with Barack Obama basically you see the deal is uh, consummated. He, when he's running for president in 2008, actually outraises his Republican opponent from Wall Street with Wall Street money. They give more for the first time in history to the Democrat than they do to the, to the Republican. It's an extraordinary thing. You give a, a pretty devastating history of the Clinton years, and they culminate, too, in the glass— uh, The repeal of Glass-Steagall. The repe- repeal of Glass-Steagall, which is— uh, a turning point for us, for American history, I yeah, think. Yeah, for, for, for us as a nation. Yes. It, but at the time, it was regarded as a great triumph. This mm-hmm. was the crowning victory of a, of a, of a triumphant presidency. And, it, well, too, I think the, the fantastic thing, when I read this book, the thing I loved was how you showed that Clinton, throughout his presidency, beat the Republicans again and again by being better at them at their own game. Yes. He was more Republicans he, than the Republicans. Yes. Well, do you know the soccer term own goal? <laughs> when you when you when you when you kick the ball into your own goal. <laughs> See, he did this repeatedly. He constantly outflanked his own team. <laughs> That's what he did. As president. This is what So so I should just uh, say uh, in the the Clinton parts of the book, the parts about Bill Clinton I deliberately did not read or use any of the right-wing Clinton hate literature. <clears throat> I didn't touch it. I don't want anything to do with that stuff. It's it's uh, paranoid. It's not rooted in fact. It's uh, you know it, it's crazy. Mm-hmm. So my critique of Clinton is built entirely on literature that is favorable to him, or else like straight biographies, like the David Moranis biography, which was you know very good. Or the, my uh, chapter about Hillary mm-hmm. is also built on on real biographies. Carl Bernstein wrote a fantastic biography of Hillary about mm-hmm. uh, back in two thousand and eight. So my discussion of the Clintons is uh, it has nothing to do with the kind of right wing critique of the Clintons. I based it on books that are favorable to them and authors that really liked Bill Clinton at the time had uh, there's five things he did as president that they thought were for the history books. These were for the ages. These were the things that made him a great president. Do you know what you want to know if they were? Let's hear NAFTA. That's number one. Uh, uh, the crime bill of 1994 is number two. Welfare reform. Number three. Bank de well deregulation, bank deregulation, telecom deregulation is number four, and then he balanced the budget. 
Number five. Now, all, all of those, with the partial exception of balancing the budget, all of those ended in disaster. And I mean crashing disaster. Nobody thinks any of those were. Uh, there's some argument about welfare reform. But not much. <laughs> the only, I mean, Bill Clinton himself is still proud of that one. All the other ones, he's been like, oh, you know, he's a little ashamed. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it, it, you know, we took it too far. You know, I, I take that back. He's still proud of NAFTA too. But uh, the the only one that's still uh, kind of controversial is uh, balancing the budget. People still think that was a good idea, but uh, it, you know, it wasn't really. But what we uh, we'll go into that later. But what uh, what. What people remember about his presidency, they don't remember any of that. People remember two things. They remember that the economy did well towards Mm -hmm. the end. The stock market was booming. And they remember the insane persecution of this guy by the Republicans, which, you know, it was it was like some kind of, uh, you know, punch and Judy show. And it was so unfair and so ridiculous that you couldn't help but side with him. I mean, that was the sort of the only point in his presidency where I really liked him was when they were when they were impeaching him. You know, <laughs> now um, I'd like you to talk about uh your, you do some really interesting sociological research and studies about the professional class. And yeah. I'd like you to talk about their creation and how this group of people who naturally don't want to be together, there there are meritocracies. Everybody, yeah. as you say, there are There's natural no antagonists. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Every did, man for himself. <clears throat> how did this group of natural antagonists come together behind uh, the Democratic Party? Isn't that fascinating? It's Isn't a, that weird? It's a really it, weird. Uh, <laughs> well, it, it was the Vietnam War is that mm-hmm. was the was the real turning point. So if you are old enough to remember the 1950s, uh, 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 your doctor, your physician, when you were a child, would have been almost certainly a Republican back then. Today, he's almost certainly, uh, or she, almost certainly a Democrat. So this group, uh, the sociologists, you know, write about professionals all the time. Actually, not so much anymore. But they used to write about professionals as a group all the time. They're fascinating people, and. They're also fascinating because they have no self-awareness as a class. They just say, we're not a class. We're the best. You know, we are, we are where we are because we're so awesome, you know. And I should also point out that I'm a member of this group. I have an advanced degree. I write books for a living, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, I used to be in academia even. So, I, 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 you know, I speak as, 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 part of this, as part of this group. But if you go back to the 50s, <clears throat> professionals as a cohort as a group, as a sociologically defined group, were the most Republican group in America, the most Republican bunch of voters, the professional class. By the 1990s, they're the most Democratic group. They completely changed sides, uh, you know, without they themselves changing. Okay, this is very interesting. What, what brought them over? The main thing was the Vietnam War. Okay, so this is, you know, this is the Vietnam War changed this country in so many different ways. But one of the ways uh, organized labor uh, stood by President Johnson. They were very loyal to President Johnson over the Vietnam War. Uh, not every union member was, of course. There were, you know, they had di- differing opinions on it, uh, just like everybody else. But a lot of the leadership of organized labor supported uh, Johnson on the Vietnam War. Well, the professional class, by and large, tends to be socially liberal. They t- also tend to be economically very conservative, but they're socially very liberal. They were uh, very clear about the, which side they were on in the Vietnam War. Okay, so after the sort of catastrophe election of 1968, the Democrats decide they're going to reorganize their party. Uh, and they, they set up this thing called the McGovern Commission, named for Senator uh, George McGovern from uh, South Dakota. This is a fascinating bit of history that you unearthed. I really loved reading about oh, this. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it's, and what's, can, can I just say what's... Amazing about all the stories that I tell in the book is that it's none of it is like skullduggery or it's not secret. Like with the Republicans, there's always this sense that everything is cloak and dagger. You know, mm-hmm. uh, the the Powell memo, it's secret. Nobody knows about it for 20 years until after it's written. With the Democrats, this is all conducted right out in the open. You can go and read all this stuff for yourself. And uh, so that's what I did. So the McGovern Commission is uh, is uh, set up uh, and its mission is to. Uh, to reorganize the Democratic Party. And what they basically decide to do is to change who the Democratic Party is, to change the nominating procedure for the presidency and thus to change the party itself. And they uh, they did a lot of things that are very healthy. Uh, they did, uh, they you know, set up the primary system that we have today and that 
actually is kind of frustrating <laughs> when you think about it. But they but they they effectively removed organized labor from its structural position within the party, and uh, and at the same time opened the party up to all these other groups and. Uh, Everybody could see at the time that what they were doing was removing one group and replacing them with another group. And they had all these different terms. They didn't, they didn't use the word professionals then. They would say uh, the suburban liberals or the white-collar voters or things like this. And this, was, this, this all happened right out in the open. And uh, McGovern, the sort of author of these reforms, went down to this like terrifying defeat in 1972. But he did win the professional class. He did very well with the professional class. Now, labor just walked away. It was an incredible disaster for the Democratic Party. Now, here's what's weird. The Democrats didn't say well, that was a really bad idea. Let's go, let's go back and undo that and like you know let's let's uh, remedy the situation. They 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 you know they persevered. Mm-hmm. They kept at it. Uh, I mean they changed things in this way and that, but they never said uh, yeah let's uh, let's bring organized labor back in. Blah 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 blah. Let's let no. They wanted to stick with the professional class through thick and thin. This is very interesting. So you had all of these different reform movements in the Democratic Party in the 80s and in the 90s. Uh, listeners are probably familiar with the Democratic Leadership Council. That's the one that Bill Clinton came out of. You you have a lot of fun with them. Oh, yeah. They're hilarious. <laughs> they're hilarious. I mean, they're just such bald-faced liars. And it was, I mean, they're, they're incredible. But, it, but there, were other, there were other movements as well. And, but they all, and they, they, they all disagreed on all these different things. Um, for example, the war, right? There, some a lot of Democrats were really they came out of the Vietnam War. That was this defining experience for them, very anti-war. The Democratic Leadership Council, man, these guys like they loved wars. <laughs> like the one, that, the thing that really did them in was the Iraq War, just mm-hmm. a couple of years ago here, where they were really supportive of that. I mean, like they were all in for the Iraq War, and it ended real badly for them. But <laughs> you know, <laughs> very embarrassing. But. Anyhow, I'm getting off track here. There are all these different reform groups, and they they disagreed on on all sorts of things. But they agreed one thing they agreed on: the Democratic Party could no longer be the party of the New Deal. Everybody agreed on this. They could no longer be the party of the New Deal, the party of labor. That was out. They had to be the party of these, uh, uh, you know, uh, white collar professionals. That's who they had to be in the future. And so, you know, all these different ways of playing it. But basically, that is what happened. And Bill Clinton is the one that really uh, set it in concrete when he became president. He was really the um, the leader of this class of uh, of Democrats. I think it's fascinating how many times the New Deal gets killed. It's like a vampire; <laughs> yes. it yeah. keeps coming back from yeah, the grave. Yeah, but it's all imaginary. Yeah. So, well, what would happen in those years? Well, and if, if this used to just drive me crazy at the time, but uh, say a Democrat would run for president, say it's McGovern, or say it's Dukakis, or say it's Jimmy Carter in 1980, and they would lose. And they would lose this real, real badly. It would be this you know terrible defeat. And uh, so then it's up to the pundits the next day to figure out a reason why they lost. And they would always choose the same reason, whether it fit the facts or not. The reason was always because they're too liberal. You know, they're still trying to drag out the New Deal. And these are guys that were explicitly had, you know, had, had, had divorced themselves from the New Deal and said, you know, I'm not like that. We're not that old Democratic Party. We're not liberals anymore. Michael Dukakis wouldn't even use the word liberal to describe himself. Once he loses, they're like, he was too liberal. It's, <laughs> the answer was always, it was always the same thing. You know, it's always it's always this creeping... Um, McGovernism, you know, that's always the problem. It's 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 extraordinary the way the media uh, and also I should say the big thinkers within the Democratic Party would would uh, would would think about these things. It's so patently dishonest, right? But it's all out there for for everyone to read. It's it's history now, and as when you when you're doing history, you know, I don't have to answer to some pundit on TV anymore, and it is like it is it is obvious what was going on with these people. It has already happened. <laughs> it's happened. It's over. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that interested me as I read this book is I kept thinking of, I guess, what you weren't saying in a way in that you were describing what had happened with the Democratic Party and the way things are now in terms of uh, the rules, uh, specifically um, the way they benefit the rich and, you know, essentially cast the poor out to dry. And it constantly made me think that, and you uh, say this often, is that 
these things are written down. We create them. The economy is not something natural. Yeah. It's not. It's not like the weather. It's not the. It's not the ecology. It's not the hand of God. It's not the hand of God. It's, it's something the invisible that... hand, right? It's not that. <laughs> it's it's laws that we've created. Yes, and I think that yeah. that's that's I've said that in all all of my books, and this yeah. is this is something that it, it seems so obvious to me, and is yet so difficult for people to. I, I, to grasp, which is that every economic relationship is a political relationship. We make the rules, mm-hmm. and so um, you know. And I've you know I've 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 used this argument uh, to go with the Republicans for years. But Democrats are just as uh, just as bad on this subject. You think about um, you know when they talk about globalization, they love to talk about this. Hillary Clinton talks about it. They all talk about it. Obama oh, yes. talks about it. Globalization. So what's what is ruining the working class of America? And Barack Obama, he feels really bad for them. And he gives these very touching speeches filled with empathy. And it's like, you know, sorry, guys, it's globalization is doing this to you or it's technology as though these were external forces that we couldn't control. And this is the same president that then, you know, and and his secretary of state that negotiate this thing called the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And the way they negotiate it is by having all the big lobbyists in D.C. write down what they want in the treaty and turn it into the State Department, who then, you know, craft the treaty. And it's thousands Entirely of, in secret. Right, right. And it's thousands of pages long. And it's got every little one of their of their demands, you know, and, and it's it, it's in incredible detail. And then they're like, sorry, that's just globalization, <laughs> you know, as though the entire globe came together to write that treaty. You know, it's no humans wrote that treaty. And the wrong set of humans. I <laughs> yeah, mean, this yeah, is not the yeah. Trans-Pacific yeah. Trade Well, treaty. some people have a seat at the table. Other people don't. And another thing I learned is this is this will make you laugh or maybe it won't. Maybe it'll make you cry. <laughs> when I was writing the book, I, I learned um, you could write a trade deal to benefit any group you wanted. And to ruin any group you wanted in this country. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we wrote something, you know, when they wrote something like, take something like NAFTA, this, it was crafted in a deliberate way to benefit one group of people and to harm a different group, to benefit people who own, particularly who own uh, factories. That could be and, built again in Mexico. Exactly. That can be moved, put everything on a truck and off it goes. And to, and to, and to harm this other group of people, you know, the people who work for them. And uh, it was it was done very deliberately. NAFTA again, two thousand pages long. This is not God. God did not write it. <laughs> it's did? not the it's not the forces of it's not the dialectic of history that gave you NAFTA. <laughs> it's lobbyists that sat down and wrote it. It's American companies that sat down and wrote it. And uh, uh, you could uh, what this is what I this is what I found out when I was writing this book. This is kind of funny. It's a, and a, a favorite economist friend of mine uh, back in Washington, D.C., talks about this all the time. You could write a trade agreement that quadrupled the number of doctors in America, that quadrupled the number of lawyers in America. And you could ensure quality. You could make make sure that they all speak English and have passed the tests and are up to par with our own uh, with our own uh, professionals in this country. You could write a, a trade agreement that imported generic pharmaceuticals at an enormous rate from, you know, from India, high quality generic pharmaceuticals. You would ruin Pfizer. You would ruin big pharma across the board. They'd be gone, and uh, that would be the end of them. And uh, it it would be really good for you and me as consumers. Now mm-hmm. you can say, well, then what what about all the research they do? Well, you take that over with the National Institutes of Health or something. You find another way to do that. But yeah, that suddenly that that whole thing about like a thousand dollars of a pill gone, yeah. and you can do that with a trade agreement, and you can make legal services and medical services so cheap for working Americans. You know, so incredibly cheap, uh, but that is never considered. You could write a trade deal that would do that. It would be easy. I would help you do it if if you would. <laughs> if, if President Obama would give me a seat at the table, I would go in there and help him do that right now. I'd write such a trade deal. Well, I hope he <laughs> listens to this interview and does that. Because... But, but the thing is, so the economist friend of mine, who he's a, a fairly prominent economist in Washington, he's proposed this again and again and again, and. No one takes it seriously. They're like, oh, that's never going to happen. That's never going to happen. It's not that it can't happen. It just never will, right? Because <laughs> we know that there's a party that really cares deeply about those people that, he's, that, he's, that he wants to target. There's a party that really cares about them. And there's... <laughs> there's two parties. <laughs> right, right. And then there's, then there's a party. Them. Well, <laughs> now, then the Republicans, they care about a different slice of the top, you know, the top 10%. 
So this is this is kind of an inter- you've brought up a kind of an interesting thing. What is the difference between the Republicans? There is a difference. Republicans and Democrats are very different creatures. Mm-hmm. Um, Republicans care, and this is this is something that it, it is fascinating. Uh, they both care about people at the top, but different people at the top. So seriously, <laughs> right? So <laughs> this is like uh, it's fun, really, <laughs> once you start thinking about it. So there's there's <clears throat> this again comes from the sociology of professionalism. All these people that have sociologists that have written about studied the professional class. There's two hierarchies of power in America. You know, maybe there's more than that, but there's two that really matter. One is a hierarchy of money, of ownership, business. Okay, small business, big business. You know, at the very top, you have like the Walton family, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> or the Koch brothers, or whatever. Forty percent of America. That's right. And, well, they own forty percent of the wealth. Yeah, and that's and that's the hierarchy of money, and they, they tend to be Republicans. And then you have the hierarchy of status. Educational status. This is the hierarchy of merit of people who have uh, are where they are because of advanced degrees and uh, professional status. That's the hierarchy of professionalism, and uh, that's Democrats, <clears throat> and they too are. I mean, they're very prosperous people, the ones at the top, and that's the ones that the Democrats care about, of course. So there's two hierarchies side by side. On many issues, they their interests are completely hand in hand. Something like trade deals, they're they're on the same page. Uh, on other, on a lot of social issues, no, they're completely at loggerheads. Uh, you know, something like uh, the Iraq War or uh, abortion or, well, you know, any of the culture war issues that we've been fighting over for the last few decades. Yes, they are very committed liberals on these issues. But on economic issues, these two hierarchies are pretty much on the same page. Tell us your take on Hillary Clinton. You have a fascinating chapter on her, and I think it's I, I thought it was really balanced and well written. I and I think throughout I hope you the thought book, that about the whole book. I, I, I tried yeah, I did, not to I go did. over the edge, you know? No, I thought it was well, I thought it was very it was a fantastic uh look at the left from the left, which I think is absolutely necessary. I wish well, there could be a, a corresponding book from the right, but I can't imagine it happening. You no, know, that you know, because the right uh, when they look at Hillary uh, they go berserk, and they uh, they and, and seriously, and their 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 mind is like taken over by these imaginary fears and uh, you know crazy fantasies of persecution, and it, they can't see straight when they mm. talk about Hillary Clinton, and so I think that um, I thought I was I was fair to her because mm-hmm. I don't particularly dislike Hillary Clinton. Uh, I actually think she'll probably be president next year, this time next year. And I, I think she might actually be a decent president. Now, she's going to be a conservative president. Mm-hmm. There's nothing new is going to happen. It's going to be Obama's third term. It's going to be the same people. So, you know, it's nothing is going to happen. Uh, I mean, nothing different. Uh, but that's OK. I'm, 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 I'm not going to vote for her in the primary. But uh, nevertheless, that's what I think. So I'm not like a I'm not a Hillary hater or anything like that. I don't particularly even dislike her. So I went to a Hillary event uh, in New York. This was a it was actually a Clinton Foundation event. That was a great, uh, a really great set piece in this book. I Yeah. <laughs> Very. Well, a lot you. of that's, fun. Uh, yeah. That's nice of you. I tried to do a bunch of these. Right. They, I was fascinated by the Clinton Foundation. Mm-hmm. And when I started writing the book, it occurred to me that the Clinton Foundation was the key to the whole thing. Uh, and uh, so I went to this Clinton Foundation event, uh, and Hillary was uh, in charge at this event. She was the MC she, At the time, that's, she was working for the Clinton Foundation, or she was on the, you know, directing it or whatever. It was before she had started running for president. It was after she was Secretary of State. And the, uh, the other MC was Melinda Gates. So you have here on the stage uh, the... A woman who's married to the richest man in the world and the woman who is the heir apparent of the Democratic Party. So two of the most powerful women in the world. And then uh, there's a succession of, of women. It's, it was on, held on International Women's Day, okay, which we'll, we'll come to later. What, later we'll, we'll talk about what International Women's Day is. This is a really interesting part of the story. But So out on the stage with these two uh, very powerful women as MCs, out on the stage come all of these... Um, Women from the third world, from the from the I mean, some of the most uh, victimized people on our entire planet come out. And basically the message is that their problems and their struggles are analogous to Hillary Clinton's troubles in becoming president. And Melinda, Ga- I don't know if Melinda Gates has any problems, any, any troubles, but but that the, their that their their life stories are analogous to these these people at the very bottom. And uh 
you know, uh, we often hear about how difficult it is for people to work up enthusiasm for Hillary. You know, she has to pay people to go to her rallies and stuff like this. You know, nobody is enthusiastic about Hillary. Well, I saw Hillary enthusiasm with my own eyes. I mean, people were like, uh, people love her. They think she is the most wonderful, you know, this, this the most wonderful woman in the world. And uh, she, when she, uh, there's a sort of, the way I put it in the book that there's a, a microclimate of virtue that surrounds Hillary Clinton. She is goodness incarnate. Uh, and, you know, I'm putting aside here all the sort of scandals that, that are about her and the stuff like that, because I don't think any of that will stick. I don't think any of that really makes a difference. She thinks of herself and her followers, her fans, think of her as the most virtuous possible, a kind of saint, a kind of living saint. Uh, is is how she presents herself and how other people think of her. And uh, this was fascinating to me. And what especially made it seem really uh, wrong, what made the whole thing, gave it a really bad taste in my mouth, is on the train on the way up to New York that morning, I had been reading a book about welfare reform written by Peter Edelman, who used to be one of the Clintons' closest friends until welfare reform. And then he was like, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't be part of your administration anymore. And actually wrote a really biting article about the Clintons in the Atlantic magazine. This is back in the 90s, which he then made into this book that I was reading about welfare reform and what it has done to wor- the working the working poor in this country, which is basically, it's pulled out the floor from under these people. Mm-hmm. So here, here I am at this Clinton event in gilded Manhattan, you know, watching the, one of the, two of the most powerful women in the world talk about how awful the glass ceiling is. And it is awful. I agree with them. And we should have a, a woman. Uh, there should be no reason to not have a woman as president of the United States. Uh, and, but I just kept thinking about all the women who got the floor pulled out from under them in the Clinton administration with welfare reform, when they just did away with welfare, threw them off you know, to the states. The states can do whatever they want with these people. And the effect that this had on millions and millions of working poor women who all of a sudden have basically have no way to support themselves and have to, I mean, are desperate. I mean, it made millions and millions of working women desperate. And that's kind of Clintonism, you know. That's that is Clintonism. It's uh, you know this this incredible upside for the people on top, and discipline, and fear for the people at the bottom. You know that's NAFTA, that's welfare reform, that's the crime bill, and that's Wall Street deregulation. So well, all of these terrible things are happening to people at the bottom, brought to you by Bill Clinton, and at the top you have. They're literally rolling back the rules. There is no more supervision. For the people at the top, there's no more rules. There's no more laws. It's like, go as high as you want. Fill your pockets. Take whatever you feel like taking. There's no ceiling, but there's also no floor. Exactly. You talk about uh, the problems of microloans, and I want you to treat that briefly before you open that up that hope box. Okay. Hillary Clinton, throughout her career, this is. Uh, she said a lot of things at this rally that I didn't understand, like that, that uh, women are better entrepreneurs than men. Uh, if we can just get women in the third world hooked up to bank accounts, this will solve all that. Women need mentoring, you know. And I was like, what? where did these ideas come from? These are so strange. You know, they, they don't seem to have any connection one with the other. And they're also a lot of them are like, you know, don't seem to be true, like the idea that women are better entrepreneurs than men. Where would that, you know, even come from? I mean, uh, I'm sure the th- the sexes are relatively well. Maybe they are. I don't know. Anyhow, I'd never heard it before, so I started asking around. All of these ideas are associated with a, a, a an idea that's uh, with a, a sort of over Uber idea that's very popular in foundation land. That's the idea of microlending, and uh, microlending is the idea that you can solve poverty by giving people, specifically women, uh, tiny little loans of like $50 or $100, and that'll solve their problems. And so when the World Bank goes into a country and says, okay, we're, uh, we're, we're taking apart your regulatory system, we're tearing down you know, whatever your trade system is that you've built up over the decades, uh, we're deregulating your economy, we're bringing neoliberalism to your economy, but we're, you know, and it's going to cause a lot of dislocation, a lot of pain and suffering, but we're going to solve that by giving you microloans, <laughs> you it's know, like coupons. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's, and, 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 and but microlending is a kind of cult. 
Mm-hmm. Okay, that's been it's built up all of these these uh, uh, these sort of lesser ideas over the years, like the idea that women make better entrepreneurs than men. That you know that didn't work out. So then it's like, okay, well, uh, you have to get everybody hooked up to Citibank. They all have to have a Citibank account. Well, that didn't really work out. So okay, they all have to have an iPhone so they can be on their Citibank account all the time. That didn't really work out. So they, okay, they have to have a a businesswoman in the West that can be their mentor to help them. You know, and it's just like. So all of these very peculiar ideas that I had never heard before are associated with this 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 sort of uh, very popular doctrine of microlending, and it's very popular for for selfish reasons. Because if microlending is really the solution to poverty, then you don't really have to do anything. We in the West, we don't, or we in the the, the, the prosperous nations of the world, we don't really have to do anything for these people. And uh, uh, here's the rub, though. Microlending turns out it doesn't work. This this whole philosophy is built on 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 a foundation of nothing. It, well, built on a foundation of bogus statistics mm. that were you know cooked up ten years ago or whatever. But it's uh, it's proven again and again and again to be a failure. It's very good for bankers. Bankers make lots of money from it. I mean, you well, can guess that you can a... see that one coming, right? Yeah. <laughs> but well, it, then it does work. Right. Right. It works <laughs> for them. It, but it doesn't empower women. No. It makes women into debtors. Right. It, it doesn't work. It doesn't it doesn't encourage them to build viable businesses. It encourages them to like become uh, to grow a garden in their backyard and like try to sell the vegetables to their neighbors who also have a garden in their backyard. It, it, and it rules out things that actually would work, like, say, uh, building factories, <laughs> you, you know, uh, development, yeah. building railroads, you know, doing stuff that countries do, building infrastructure, roads. Yeah. Uh, all that stuff that countries Airports, do places yeah ports. yeah no it, all that don't do any of that you you do this instead <laughs> and it's 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 it is a like enormous catastrophe this is going on all over the world and it's you know sinking the poor deeper into poverty and yet here's Hillary Clinton talking about this is the solution for everything that's what this was it was a celebration of this idea all right, Thomas. <laughs> you want the you want it the moment of hope? I is there is there any hope in amidst all this? There is. Bernie Sanders. <laughs> and I'm not like talking here as like a uh, you know like a guy that's like, "Hey, Bernie Sanders is going to win this year." Bernie Sanders gives me hope for two reasons. He has put all of these issues back on the table that the the, the Democratic Party thought it had um, separated from itself forever. These were things that were gone. This is this is all these old New Deal ideas that they that they had cast behind them. Get behind me, New Deal. Back in the in the in the seventies, eighties, and nineties. Get me behind me. Yeah, and now all this stuff is back. And look at this; it's popular, mm-hmm. you know. And the other thing is uh, that he has shown that where the he has shown where the the uh, where you have the a sort of breach in the ramparts, right? A chink in the armor of of the Democratic Party. When I, you and I talked last time, I was very morose because I would say things like, you know, uh, you know, thanks to Citizens United, uh, basically our political system has been completely captured by big money, and there's no way someone with my views or, or someone who 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 can do the things that need to be done, not my views, but someone who can come in and do the antitrust thing and do the uh, the stuff that that helps out workers. Uh, there's no way a, a politician like that can get to the top anymore. Well, Bernie has shown us that there is. And that's that's a wonderful thing. I've been speaking with Thomas Frank. His new book is Listen, Liberal. <laughs> Thank you, Thomas. Rick, it is a pleasure as always. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.